0: I laid in bed looking at the ceiling, trying to remember what city I was in. I knew I was on business travel, but I didn't know if I was in Cleveland or Chicago. What was I supposed to be doing that morning? I mean, I literally had to lay there for 10 minutes before I realized what I was supposed to be doing that day. I mean, work was so intense that sometimes I was just overwhelmed. I was working my dream job at a New York advertising agency, traveling, staying in nice hotels, paying for meals. I had a cell phone before it was popular. I mean, cell phones were still crazy expensive, but I had one. And I had a laptop. <sighs> Yet I was completely overwhelmed and worn out all the time. The way I was traveling was not at all glamorous like I thought it would be. When my father passed away, they called me after two weeks to ask if I was coming back. Or rather, they told me that if I didn't come back, I would be fired. So I went back. Actually, his passing opened a spiritual awareness that made fast food advertising like what I was doing look utterly ridiculous, like a waste of my time. I felt that way shortly after I got the job, but I was trying so hard to to do well at it and I wanted to succeed and someone had referred me for the job and I'm like, this is supposed to be what success looks like. It didn't feel like success to me. (laughs) I had no energy for any kind of socializing. Whenever I did have a free weekend, I had to zone out just to recuperate. You know, if I could just muster up the energy to take my laundry across the street to be washed, that was like huge. At the time, there was no phrase like grind culture, which we have now. My guest today is going to talk about grind culture. I remember reading a book called The Reinvention of Work because it was by Matthew Fox or is by Matthew Fox. I knew that there had to be some other way of working and I am so glad that work has shifted and there's so many different ways of working that are considered valid. Well, I guess it depends on what circle you travel in, but they're valid in my circles. (laughs) So now I'm going to um, tell you a little bit about my guest today and... I want to thank you so very much for tuning in to the Center Her Power podcast. I love coming to be with you and sharing information. And if you like the podcast, can you subscribe, like, and do all the things that people do when they like podcasts? I switched to a new service, a new podcast host. And so I'm hoping that works out. I I don't know. I may switch back. <laughs> I'm not sure I gotta see how it works out So you all let me know You can send me an email at Sanaa at centerherpower Or you can find me on Instagram At centerherpower And I'm gonna tell you about our guest And then we'll get into the show Archer is an Afro-Indigenous activist and wellness coach with a vision and mission to create patterns of thriving in her personal life as well as in the communities that she serves. She is a certified life coach with specialties in sound healing, Reiki yoga, and hypnotherapy. With an educational background from Smith College and New York University and over 15 years of experience with teaching, training, and curriculum development She weaves academic and organizational background with her work as a healer and wellness coach to create transformational learning experiences for you. Here's my interview with Heather Archer. And I am so excited to dive into her new book. And um, it's really, to me, touching on some of the key issues that I have had with work and purpose and then this whole notion of the grind so um grind culture Mm -hmm. heather archer can you tell us a little bit about grind culture what exactly is it oh actually you know what i wanted to do i have something have something that i took Mm -hmm. from your book one of the exercises and so i wanted to see if you can introduce yourself in that way so in the book, you talked about okay. um, understanding who you are and how you connect to your ancestors. I'm very much connected to my ancestors. And so I wanted to, wondered if you could introduce yourself and give us your name, who, the, who you are the daughter of, and who you, who you are descended from.
1: Oh, I love that. Thank you for grounding us in that way. Um, my name is Heather. I am the daughter of Pamela and Marcus, um, and originally from Chicago. And my, uh, I come from um, an Afro-indigenous lineage. So that includes um, Lakota Sioux, Native American, and um, the Bubby people of, um, of um, Equatorial Guinea, and the Tikar tribe and the Fulani in Cameroon.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. You know, I I haven't done the tribe yet. I've done the genetic DNA testing, and I've not done the tribe. My cousin actually did the African ancestry test to find out which tribe our maternal lineage is from. And when she did the test, they found that, that the DNA group that we're from, the haplogroup that we're from, is not found on the continent, the subcontinent of Africa. Actually, wow. we're from Madagascar, which is off the southern coast of Africa. Yeah, so, so we're Malagasy. And that's where I have the connection to Lemuria, and that's where all of this, you know, the remembrance of Lemuria and oh. um, the connection to the earth and song and Mm -hmm. sound, vibration, how that all comes together for me. And I wonder if you could tell us how sound and nature come together for you.
1: Mm. Well, thank you, first of all, for sharing that. Um, Yeah, I just feel like it just gives me so much more insight into who you are. Um, So for for me, sound has just been a, a fact of life. For my family, uh, on both sides, um, I have a, a, I have some classically trained musicians on both sides of my family, and you know they grew up in the the, um, the church, the Christian church. Um, and I never grew up religious, so I was kind of a weirdo in my family. It Was like I, most of my family grew up in Chicago. I grew up in California. I wasn't raised religiously at all. But my, you know, family back in Chicago definitely went to church. And so a lot of the music is tied to the Christian church. And so, and I've always loved gospel music. I've never, um, like, connected as much to the the religion part, but I love the music part. And because I guess I never connected to Christianity, I always kind of was like, oh, well, my family's really talented. My family, they, they do the sound thing. You know, they're musicians. They're the creative ones, you know. And I never saw that in myself. And I remember a few years ago, my cousin was like, no, no, it's in you too. And I remember being like, okay, like I just didn't believe him. And so sound healing, particularly with the crystal singing bowls, it was just, it it was just as soon as I played it the first time that was, it was over, you know, it was done. It was a, a new journey for me. And, um, I just had to see sound and music in a different way. So I grew up always loving music, um, used to want to be a music producer but I never thought I could that I would be the creator of the music. I always thought I'd be arranging it in the background and stuff. So um yeah, I would say that my sound healing journey has definitely consisted of me coming back home to myself.
0: My my um family was very musical too. And in my generation, my brother is a classically trained musician. My stepfather was a gospel musician, and I do love the music. And at one point, I was very religious, too. Um, so, I see in your work that there is a lot of spirituality. You mentioned that your family was was Christian and religious and 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 now you're helping people in a way that I would consider very much spiritual. How do you see the correlation? Mm-hmm. Do you? I, I really think that families, sometimes um, that we've come here for a particular reason, like our lineage has a particular mm-hmm. p- purpose. What do you think about that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking these questions. Um, yeah, I think that my sound healing practice is definitely... And And my, my general career path currently is very much aligned with ancestral remembering, um, because a lot of the things I was called to do by my ancestors and guides, I was very resistant to it. I was very resistant to getting my first set of singing bowls. I, was, I kept getting the nudge for months, and I was just like, "Why am I thinking about these singing bowls?" Like that's, that's you know, for, I had all the reasons as to why I shouldn't. Um, and a lot of that had to do with representation. Like, I don't see people like me playing them. I, I can be spending my money many other places. I could be spending my time other, th- you know, all those reasons that you, you don't do the thing. Um, but it was the reclamation of, you know, learning about my ancestral roots, um, really claiming a lot of my ancestry. I think I spent a lot of time feeling like the lone wolf in my family or like the black sheep. And so I didn't see myself as a part. Um, and that a lot of that had to do with just like how I was particularly raised. And yeah, I think even with the spirituality piece, because um, I, I very much, I actually was given a Bible about a year, maybe going on two years Your ago now. Your first Bible
0: was two years ago? And, um, wow. Yes.
1: That was given a, <laughs> yes, I, I, um yeah I never owned a Bible before um but this Bible was from my great grandmother and um my uncle wasn't when I did reconnect with my father's side of the family my my uncle said he was instructed to give this Bible to the oldest living woman in in our lineage, and that's me and I remember looking at this Bible like, okay, that's great like i'm I was happy to get the mementos like the pictures, the obituaries, the letters, but I was like, I don't know what to do with this Bible, you know and um, I think just recently, especially as I started learning more about the the lineage of hoodoo and root work and how, you know, a lot of times our spirituality, you know, during the transatlantic slave trade was like stripped from us in a lot of ways, and we had to hide it within Christianity. And so looking at the Bible from a different lens, not as a form of indoctrination, but as a form of perseverance, you know, um, that, that, that was a game changer. So I do study the Bible now, interestingly enough, and, um, it's connected to my spirituality for sure. Um, but yeah, my family and my spiritual, pra- spiritual practice is just the closer I've gotten to my family lineage, the closer I've gotten to a lot of this soul work.
0: Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing so I see a link, a correlation between a passage that um, Khalil Gibran wrote about work and um, that, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that if we cannot work from love, from the love of our soul, then we'll make a bitter bread. And so it's better just to sit mm. at the gates and pay alms is what he's saying. I'll have to read it and share it and mm-hmm. um, um, and the, when I do the editing, but, but that work can, for me, I've been really kept processing this whole notion that work is also a spiritual calling and yes. it, as a spiritual calling, it can also be, you know, a grind and can you, Talk to us a little bit about how you came to um, connect with this notion of grind culture. I know that you were in your book. You talked about how you were working in at a summer camp, and I actually worked at a summer camp one summer. And you're, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, in, in West Virginia <laughs> in the mountains. And you're so right. You spend all of these days, and you're creating this these experiences for young people. And there really is very little downtime to, like, reflect. I know for me, I always need time to re- to regenerate mm-hmm. after I've been around a large group of people, especially after I've been around children. As much as I may enjoy them, mm-hmm. <laughs> they do require a lot, and they want your best. And if you can't come with your best, mm-hmm. then, you know, they're really going to be hurt by that. And the whole group can be hurt, even if you're, you know, so I, so I wonder... If you could talk to me, I think I'm going to change this question. So if you could could talk to me about what drew you to work with children in this therapeutic way. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: I, it just wasn't so natural for me. I just I really got a lot out of education, um, self-education growing up. So I really loved the intrinsic desire to learn Um School, depending on, on the subject, I liked it or I didn't, but I, one thing I always remembered was just that when I remembered a good teacher, to your point around like how children like really want your best and just really thinking about those standout adults in the education system that, you know, they just came with something extra. They came with that dose of love, like going back to that Khalil Gibran quote you mentioned, you know? And just how much they helped me, how much their care and presence helped me. It was something I wanted to do, um, to, to give back. And um I knew I was gonna be an educator when I was about 16 years old. Really weird story. I was um I used to go and hang out in Barnes and Noble a lot. And um I don't know, one day I passed by the reference section of Barnes and Noble. And I was being I was homeschooling um, homeschooling at the time. So I was getting ready to graduate from from high school. So I was just in the I was in a very self-study mode. And in this reference section, there was a a book which had all of the test scores um, of California schools. And so I, I grew up in Southern California. And so I was like, all right, let me look at my my test scores from all the schools I went to just, you know, just because. And I just remember feeling so cheated because I looked at all the schools I went to and we were like in the 50th percentile time and time again. And then I was like, well, let me look at the schools that are just really like right down the road, but they just happen to be in another zip code, um, you know, with a little bit more money. And they were all in the 90th percentile. And we're talking about a few miles away from each other. And I was like, so literally just because I didn't have you know, I wasn't in the same zip code. I didn't get the same level of public education. Like, I just felt so robbed. And I was like, no, this isn't right, you know? And so I just remember just wanting to provide, like, equitable education experiences. So that fire of, like, that injustice is kind of what has always, not always, but um, and up until very recently, that's been kind of the thing that has fueled me of just, like... Um, Providing some, a, another alternative to people who look like me, who, you know, who are just as curious as anyone else, you know?
0: You know, I, I find having worked around people who are youth workers, I worked, I, I guess, I mean, there are people like you who kind of came up, I don't know if you did, if you came up through a youth program and then became a youth leader mm-hmm. and then yeah okay so yeah. you were you, you were kind of c- c- cultivated and, and so you have a sense of um what is the word is, there's a word where there's like adultism youthism and you, you feel a sense that you've, you've been empowered to advocate mm-hmm. for yeah. youth and particularly for yourself and i i didn't i didn't come up that way i didn't come to youth work from that way but i think that there's a there's a similar thread with people that i have met who are really the strongest advocates for youth those who feel that they um in some way were not did not get what they were entitled to as a young person mm-hmm. how does that drive to Um, advocate for yourself, how do you see that playing out in your work now?
1: Mm. Oh, that's the whole grind culture detox process has been like self-advocacy, like knowing that, you know, I can pour all of my energy into my detriment, into my work. And what is it going to really do for me at the end of the day? Like, if I am I really working on behalf of justice if I feel like you know I'm gonna break because I gotta get this event together, you know, or I have to get this experience together, um, I had to really go in and uh, look at the way I was raised and look at the the norms that I've, I accepted and like really look at breaking patterns, you know, generational patterns a lot of times. And there's a self advocacy in that. That's there is that 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 knowing that you deserve better, you know. And also knowing that nobody's going to give it to you, you know, I mean, we are working towards a world in which it becomes easier for each generation, but at the same time, a lot of it is about cultivating your voice and saying, actually, no, I deserve this, you know? Um, And yeah, that's definitely been, I haven't thought of it that way, Sana, but like, yeah, that's still very much something that... um, that self-advocacy is very much something that's rooted in, in the work I do today.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so what I want to do is kind of shift a little bit. And I want to go to some of the mm-hmm. myths that you mentioned in your book. And I just want to call it out and then I mm-hmm. want you to kind of talk a little bit about it, which would kind of give us some more mm-hmm. understanding of grind culture. Okay, one of the myths yes, you yes. talked about is that you are less valuable than someone from the dominant culture.
1: Mm. Mm, Yes. So, um, you know, this system has been set up, uh, the system that we currently are working and living in has been set up to benefit a certain type of person. And a lot of times that is, um, you know, what we'd call like cisgendered heterosexual white men, you know, um, that they get, they eat first kind of thing. That's kind of how our society has been set up. And if you think about it, it's because it was created a lot of, by the imaginations of cisgendered heterosexual white men, you know? And so there's a, that makes sense, right? You know, you're going to create the vision of, of, you know, for yourself. Um, And so with that, because we haven't analyzed that, you know, and we haven't done our healing work. Once again, the ancestral healing work, it happens on both sides. It happens um, for the oppressor and the oppressed. And also knowing that, you know, I've been oppressed, but I've also been the oppressor, you know, so doing that necessary work. But if you don't have the time to do that healing work, you're just going to keep perpetuating that cycle um, of favoring a certain population in our society and that has created a lot of falsehoods it's created a lot of perfectionism like feeling like we have to appear a certain way in the workplace in particular or in our schools or organizations and if our name doesn't it doesn't sound a certain way if we don't look a certain way if our hair doesn't look a, I mean it's endless you know um and our society benefits from that you know there's a, there's a capitalistic point of like if I feel incomplete and if I feel like I have to constantly look outside of myself for self-worth, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. You know, I'm going to be a consumer. And so, yeah, that's a falsehood that has, um, you know, definitely said, like, if you don't fit these, this particular box, then you got to work. what We've heard it right. Twice as hard. <laughs> you know, that's just a common thing that a lot of, people of African ancestry living in the U S have heard is you got to work twice as hard. And that's just a fact of life. Mm. And I think, you know, the work now is like, is that a fact of life? Like, why is that a fact of life? Let's start you know, this, I, I think, I know, think I want some new facts, of...
0: you know, can we, can I, I'm going to establish some new facts.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, that's, that's definitely a big part of the myth busting. I like, is this a fact and whose fact is this? And why is this, a, you know, Really starting with why and and seeing where that
0: takes you. You know, I'd so relate to that because I I am a recovering grinder. Well I, well, I don't know if I would say it like that. I mean, I I think, I guess, I don't know how it was, if I would say it that way, but I'm, I worked in corporate America. I worked in advertising mm-hmm. and I was really trying to achieve career success through working in a system that was created by the dominant culture, which required... Mm-hmm. Working, working, working. I remember when I was working in New York at an advertising agency, I was working with a black agency, but we were we constantly had to validate ourselves to the white agency and to yeah. the client who was an, um who was a, a big fast food maker. And there were times mm-hmm. when I was working so much, you know, I I would get up for, you know, at like four o'clock in the morning to get a seven AM flight, get off mm-hmm. the plane go to the meeting, get the rental car, go to the meeting, meet about what we're going to talk about to the franchisees and then go to the hotel and maybe by the time I got to the hotel maybe it was 9 p.m. So I have been going mm-hmm. the entire day and then the next day I have to get up to be at the meeting at 9 a.m. and then then mm-hmm. then run to the airport to catch the plane to come back home. It was, you know, yeah. it was mm-hmm. crazy and then I was like, "Wait a minute, if why am I working this way? If if I'm going to work this, these crazy hours, then I really need to be saving the world. Not, not promoting something that's not even healthy for my own community. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so I had to, to change, but the change was very difficult and uncomfortable to achieve. So I, I want to, I want to actually go into another myth, but I wanted to see if you could speak to the process. I know in your book, The Grind Culture Detox, you you have um, some exercises that people can engage in where they can reflect on what's happening in their lives in relationship to work. I also wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your personal experience with this mm-hmm. transition because if you've been bred and like you say in your book we've been acculturated to be this way I mean the schools you didn't say this part but the schools are actually designed to to create workers Yeah, we're not designed yep. we're not the schools are not created to create um, self-starters um, independent thinkers, those who analyze and process ideas and thoughts and the culture. Mm-hmm. We're taught to to accept what is and to to live, to go out, to get a job. How did you make the mm-hmm. shift? I know you I know it's probably a long a long story, but oh. give us the highlights. Yeah.
1: Well, I would say that, you know, first of all, speaking to what you mentioned around the traveling and working, you described days that I definitely had. Um, Now, the flip side of it is the work I was doing. I did feel like I was saving the world. So we had the mission. It was like mission aligned. And so I was like, so I just threw myself into it, you know, and there were days where I was like, so in it, I was so into it, so excited and there's going to be times where you're just it's going to be a, a fast moving day. You're, it's going to be action packed, but I think the issue becomes if that's just if that's the constant, you know, if that's the constant pace, that becomes more difficult. Um, but I think for me, I'll be honest, it all changed when I um, when I got pregnant. I, um, you know, to your point around being a like I would call myself a re- recovering perfectionist, and just. feeling like I always had to be on, I always had to be 10 steps ahead. And that was, I was bred that way to navigate a lot of these white dominated institutions, you know, Um, so going to predominantly white institutions for college, um, there was a certain way I had to move and navigate. Um, And I, in a lot of ways, it supported me in the workforce, you know, but it wasn't necessarily healthy for my well being. And it particularly wasn't healthy for, creating a family, you know, um, if I'm putting everything into my work, you know, that's cool. But then what if, until it's not, it's until you're a caregiver, you know? And so really understanding my humanity outside of my work, that was the, that was the first step for me. And, you know, I talk about it in the grind culture detox, but there was this moment of like, wow, I've never, and this is my own ableism coming out. I never had the experience of feeling like my body or my, like my body was a liability, like my ability to work was a liability. I never had that. I never, um, you know, after I started educating myself and learning more about my internalized ableism and stuff, I I realized that it was just, um, a lot of people have that experience, but being pregnant and all of a sudden my lack, my, you know, me needing to take time off to, to care, care for my, you know, child, like maternity leave was a fight, you know? And I was like, whoa, why am I over here fighting for maternity leave? And then started doing research and was like, oh, I'm not even, I don't need to get maternity leave according to the U S government. You know, that's not required, you know, that's, I don't, you know, so it's really up to my job to decide. And luckily I was able to, to fight for maternity leave, but I'm like, dang, I got to fight for my maternity leave. <laughs> like I wasn't expecting to do all of this, you know? And, um, yeah, I think, you know, when I I, I had my baby, I I, I was able to get two and a half months off, but that still didn't feel like enough time, you know, and I was like doing research into like places like Canada where they get like nine months. I'm like, really? Like, you know, or places where there's paternity leave, too. Um, And so I was already in a position of like, dang, like, I really do wish I could have a little bit more downtime, but, you know, bills got to get paid. You know, I also got a I got promoted at the same time that I came back to work. So I I got a promotion where I was doing a lot more, taking on a lot of responsibility and also a new mom and just really feeling the pressures of like when I was at work and working overtime and taking calls outside of regular work hours and stuff. I was feeling guilty. It was it was it was being done out of a sense of guilt of like because, you know, I was also taking breaks to breastfeed and and that sort of stuff where I had to pick up my son early. So a lot of that's when I started to see my humanity differently, like outside of just me being a producer, but but also being a caretaker, raising a human life. um, That's when things really shifted for me. And and I started to see my my existence a lot differently because I was like, oh, this is very conditional. This is. You know, um, if it's all good until I got to take I got to have set some boundaries around work and that sort of stuff. So that was kind of my journey. And, um, you know, working at the particular summer camp I was at, you know, we were doing healing work. You know, we had the sound healing. We had the yoga. We were teaching African history. All this all the stuff on paper was right. But what wasn't right was we didn't have the space to rest. We didn't have the space to slow down. And so, you know, a question, a critical question I ask myself with any work I do now, specifically in the name of healing is, you know, is it healing work if I, if, if people don't feel safe resting. And I would say, I I don't think so. I don't think that that's healing work. You know Um, we should have permission to pause. We're not all going to go at the same pace and we, we get to tap out. It's okay to tap out sometimes That's a part of the ebbs and flows of life. And, I learned that in a very hard way worked my body really hard that summer um you know i knew something needed to change when i was like going 16 hours without eating because my stress response when i'm in a lot of stress my appetite goes but it's like i can't be doing that when i'm breastfeeding you know like that's not that's not really a thing i got to make sure my my body is um, providing nutrients and so yeah it was like oh wow I can go 16 hours without eating, running myself ragged, not getting a lot of sleep and breastfeeding. And nobody's going to tell me to slow down. It's got to be me. If I don't set this boundary, I, who will, you know, nobody else will. And it was that moment of like, Heather, this is you. This is a you thing. Um, Yes, we live in this society. And yet if, if you want to thrive, you know, you gotta, you gotta start setting some boundaries. And that's, that's, Yes. (laughs) that's very Yes. <laughs> so
0: I want to go you talked about some of the some of the um signs that you may be in a grind culture and so I wanted to go on to page 17 of your book and I'm going to read a mm-hmm. couple of them and those who are listening might be able to kind of judge for themselves whether or not they mm-hmm. see them. They see this in themselves. So one, you said, how often do you skip mealtime at work? Which is something that you you talked about. How often mm-hmm. do you feel guilty when you aren't working?
1: Mm-hmm. How often
0: do you check work related emails after your workday is officially over? Or if you're self-employed, the workday never ends. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. You know, that's something mm-hmm. that I really
0: need to work on. Um how often do you feel like your work is in competition with your family? And how often do you miss out on family events or activities? So those are just a few of the, I know you have a list of, I think, you know, about 15 or 20 ways that you can know whether or not this actually applies to you. Like if you're, you know, like the mm-hmm. boundaries between work and, yours, and your life and your well-being are, are, have been crossed. How did you come up with those questions?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, I'm very much connected to my routines. I'm somebody who is a creature of habit in a lot of ways, um, and I, you know, when I was in, at the height of grind culture, I was very much. In my calendar. So um, everything, every minute was accounted for, you know, everything I had to do was on my calendar, everything's color coded and stuff. And so I started, you know, because I am this creature of habit and routine, and I lived by my calendar so much, I started to see like, wow, if I don't put my livelihood in my calendar, it won't get done. You know, if I don't make the you know, not just the things I have to do visible on my calendar, but also the processing time that I need, the rest time that I need. If I don't start doing that, like that that would that just seemed like a really attainable way for me to start setting some boundaries and so like really look, okay, how are you living your life? And I was able to see that by looking at my calendar. And um yeah, I think, you know, a lot of this came from my own healing journey around um, grind culture. Um, I've been very much inspired by the NAP ministry and, um, and the work of Trisha Hersey around naming grind culture. And um, I think for me, the way I've propelled the work is like, okay, how do we name grind culture in the workplace? And how do we, what are some small, subtle shifts that we can make within our day um you know once we name grind culture what's in our locus of control and so our the way we set up our day that's in our locus of control you know um not all that sometimes we're going to have busier days than others however it's like if we go back to the things that the choices that we make it's a way to start shifting um shifting the grip that of that grind culture has on us. And so when I, you know, ask people to do that assessment, I always preface it by saying this is not for you to, you know, get an A plus on, you know, or to be the well-being ambassador like no, this is we're all going to answer these questions. Like we're all going to look at this assessment after and be like, "Dang, there's no nobody's going to really be absolved from that, but it is a way of naming it." Of like, you know, it's just making making the elephant in the room be heard, I think, is was the was why and how I developed those questions um, to make it not just a common sense fact of life, you know, because when you see it on paper and it's like out of your head, you're like, oh, this is this is interesting. Why am I why am I organizing my life mm-hmm. this way? You and know? so
0: I, I, I see that you do workshops. Can you tell us how can someone work with you? hmm
1: Well, there's a couple of ways. So um, I do one-on-one coaching where I take people through a, a grind culture detox coaching experience. It's an eight-week experience. Um, and the, the goals of that is to assess someone's relationship with grind culture, set goals, um, really introduce them to different wellness practices that they can incorporate in their workday. If we, if we wait to heal after work, the healing a lot of times won't necessarily happen or not in the ways in which we need it to happen. And so it's like, how do we bring the healing practice into our work so that we're in a state of flow instead of the grind? Um, So that's one way. Um, Another way is, you know, buying the book, you know, the book has some really um, cool practices in it to just, you know, if you're like, curious about grind culture, and you're like, you know, I want to assess my relationship with it. You can, you can also do a self-study through reading the book. Um, I also have a, um, a group, um, coaching subscription program. So, um, it's a monthly subscription where we read the book together. Um, we'll do activities related, um, together. We focus a lot on energy healing. How do we manipulate energy, um, in the workplace in a way so that we're not feeling drained and that sort of stuff. Um, it's just a way to have an accountability community, like knowing other people are going through this process because you can feel a little isolated sometimes doing this wow, on now, your own. How can so,
0: you? Uh, can you give us yeah. a, as an example of how we can manipulate energy in the workplace?
1: Oh, yes. Okay. So, one thing is, um, we, the people that we work with, sometimes we get to choose who we work with. Sometimes we don't, you know? So with that, you encounter all kinds, you know? Um, some people you're going to work well with together. Some people might be considered what we might call like an energy vampire. And, you know, that might be done on perp, that might be a purposeful thing, or it just might be a trauma response that they're that they're doing. And so um, a lot of ways you can tell um, is is through boundaries. If people accept your boundaries or not, you know, if your boundaries are reasonable, like, all right, I'm off at five. You know, I, I'm legally contracted to work eight hours a day, but you're constantly seeing that your bound that boundaries being tested constantly by one particular colleague or one particular um, you know manager. That might be a sign of okay, there's an energetic manipulation happening and some. So we might need to work on that. And so then, you know, you might need to do um, one tech, one really easy technique is if you're working with a challenging person in the workplace, making sure you do an energy, you know, you you do a bubble of protection, you know, just take a moment right before the meeting starts. um, You know, go into stillness, um, envision a a bubble of energetic protection, knowing that, you know, you have created your own sacred space before this meeting happens. Um, reclaiming your energy. Um, And so that, you know, just mentally, so, you know, mentally uh, preparing your mind for that interaction and and coming at it from a place of power, as opposed to disempowerment. And then after the meeting, staging, you know, especially if you work from home, all that energy just stays in your home, you know, like, making sure you're, you're um, you know playing a sound bowl, like it could take one minute, you know, you could listen to a whole hour sound healing, or you could play a sound singing bowl for like one minute before your next meeting. Right. Clear the space, you know? So, you know, really seeing it from, you know, sometimes like, you know, from a spiritual warrior, you know, wellness warrior, like sometimes there is a, there is a, pe- a way of a peaceful warrior with the work of the grind culture detox. Cause not everybody's going to understand it or support it. Um, And accepting that and also still like remaining in your power, remaining in your sovereignty, um, you know, while living and working in this world.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, so if people want to work with you, they can do individual coaching, group coaching. You'll take them through the book. Mm -hmm. Um, They can walk through the book. And Mm -hmm. how else? I know that you did a work, a retreat not long ago or. Yeah.
1: So I I do retreats from time to time. I haven't done my own, like hosted my own retreat. That's in the future, but I do um, like, there's actually one coming up in um, October. Um, I'll I'll send the information so that if anybody kind of wants to attend, but it's, I'll be doing a sound healing and breath work retreat um, with, um, with a a black yogi. Her name, she rocks yoga. She does some amazing uh, yoga and breath work. So she has a whole setup in Joshua Tree, California, It'll be a four-day experience, um, so I'll be uh, presenting at that, um, and also I have a podcast too, so like, you know, we, we I'll interview different people who are going through the Rhyme Culture Detox process in their own ways to get strategies. Um, also, you know, if you go on my website at thrivingwithheather.com, I also have some, some um, some free toolkits, you know, if you want to, you know, kind of start the process, but maybe you're not ready to do the, the one-on-one coaching or the group coaching. There are some toolkit downloads, um, which um, I have one, a, a thriving toolkit that you can download, which gives you a, a book recommendation list for your grind culture detox process and different ways to start organizing your calendar in a humane way. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm really working on making sure my services reach folks where they're at, you know, in different different points of the journey, because we're all at different points of the journey.
0: Well, Heather Archer, thank you so much for joining me on Center Her Power podcast. You share so, such great information and it's a great book. You all you be sure and get it.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for holding this space. And, uh, and it's just it was really great um, connecting with you and. Thank you so much for your thoughtful question. You're
0: very welcome. Hey, everybody. We're talking about this quote in the interview, and I wanted to just step aside and put this little quote in here so that you have it. This is from The Prophet. The name of the book is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms from those who work with joy meaning look at look at and honor those who work with joy for if you bake bread with indifference you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger and if you grudge the crushing of the grapes your grudge distills a poison in the wine and if you sing though as angels and love not The singing you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night.